Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. That this was a time of American exceptionalism, and we have forgotten how much we achieved as a nation, that we were, le- we were leading expeditions to Antarctica. This was the most exciting thing going. It was the great unknown. We were flying over the continent for the first time, and we have forgotten about the passion that all Americans had for this expedition. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 31, released on January 31. Never trust numbers. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured, or have authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author Lori Gwen Shapiro about her book, The Stowaway. Lori Gwen Shapiro is a native of New York City's Lower East Side. She has most recently written articles for publications including The New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Daily Beast, Slate, Eon, Los Angeles Review of Books, and has her own history column focusing on unsung heroes for the forward. Shapiro was also a documentary filmmaker who won an Independent Spirit Award for directing IFC's Keep the River on Your Right, a modern cannibal tale, and an Emmy nomination for producing HBO's Finishing Heaven. The Stowaway is her first nonfiction book. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. My name is John Manaster. I'm your host, and I'm very excited today to be with Lori Gwen Shapiro, author of The Stowaway. Lori, say hello. Hello, I'm very excited to be here as well. Okay, good to know. Um, yeah, The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventures to Antarctica uh, is a exciting, exciting book, and I always like to kick things off by asking the author to summarize the book for us. Go for it. Okay, well, this is a nonfiction book. A few people have asked me if it's a novel, but this is a story um, of a young man, 17 years old, just out of high school, who actually jumped into the Hudson River in 1928 to stow away to Antarctica with the first American expedition that was being run by then Commander Richard Byrd, who many Americans will know as Admiral Byrd. And this is the story of how he got there and then what became of him. Yeah, and and what a story. Uh, So, yeah, I always like to start off with some kind of process questions to learn more about what it was like to put the book together and write the book. And, yeah, as you mentioned, it's a true story, but it really is written like a gripping narrative. I mean, there's just so much going on. You're transported to the locations, the sights and sounds and smells so maybe talk a bit about what it was like taking kind of all this 
historical research that you did and turning it into a narrative? What was that like? Well, for me, um, the kind of books that I enjoy the most are narrative nonfiction that unfold like novels. So that was always my goal. Um, I have a background as a novelist. I was a young novelist in the late 90s, and I did a little chit-lit when I was a little bit older. Um, and now I wanted to do something with more gravitas. But I think what's important is that I also have experience as a documentary filmmaker. And I mm. had the idea that if I went back to writing, I wasn't going to be writing wacky novels anymore. I wanted to write the kind of books I read in, in real life. So I wanted to write a serious nonfiction book that unfolded like a novel or one of those documentaries you see that's a great true story. So to me, this book is um, taking skill sets that I have from um, past parts of my life, my novel techniques, my research techniques as a documentarian, and storyteller techniques. Um, and to me, it reads even like a documentary unfolding in a book hmm. as well. Um, I tried to make it very visual. One of the things that's really interesting is that I spent three years um, researching this on my own. I'm not at a university. I'm working out of my house. Um, but I was able to access uh, quite a bit of the story um, from old newspapers, not just from the ones that I was able to find online and at microfiche, but I guess we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I was able to get primary sources from unexpected people. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I was just, just going to ask you about. I mean, you had this selected bibliography, which was amazing. I mean, you, had, you did so much research and so much work uh, finding all this information, getting doing primary research, doing new information. You know, talk about that for a bit, including some of the people you found and interviewed. And then, you know, I'd love to hear about your trip to Antarctica, which sure. is the ultimate primary research <laughs> for the book. Well, actually, the, the first thing that happened is that you need to know I wasn't setting out to write this book. Mm -hmm. This was happenstance. I wanted to write such a book, but I didn't know where to turn. Um, what I was doing um, in the interim, preparing for the kind of uh, nonfiction book that I wanted to write was just practicing craft. And I was writing one story, and I saw the this tiny mention of a stowaway connected to a church, a Polish church in New York City from 1928, and I just, who had a parade of 500 kids coming, um, marching from Tompkins Square in the East Village to City Hall to meet the returning teen stowaway with, and I just said, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of stopped everything that I was doing, and I got as far as I could at first. I, I found one or two things in the New York Times, but his last name is Garonsky, and people could not handle a long Polish name, and I guess that, that they might have misspelled it, which was a great guess, because other things started to emerge. But then I went to the library and got out microfiche on things I couldn't get from online sources, and I still didn't feel I had enough. And what I did is I made a spreadsheet a crazy, crazy spreadsheet of all the Garonskis and Garonskis on the eastern seaboard. And I started to call them after a giant cup of coffee. <laughs> and I would call and I would say, hi, um, 
I'm a writer, and are you possibly descended from a teen stowaway who swam across the Hudson River in 1928 and joined Admiral Byrd's expedition to Antarctica? And it was like, click. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah. lot of hangups. And I just started laughing, but I felt that I, as a documentarian, I knew one way to a, a great story is to have true access and not just to regurgitate what you see in the newspaper. And I finally, about the 19th call, um, reached... Uh, a name, you know, that had a similar name, and um, a woman answered, and she had a heavy accent, and I knew that Billy Goronsky, my protagonist, my stowaway in this book, was born in 1910 in New York City, and that he mm. would, he, his children wouldn't have probably had accents, and I, but I went through my spiel instead of hanging up, and I heard very softly, that was my husband, mm. and I had a chill that went down my spine, and I, Honestly, knew it was going to be a book at that moment, but um, she then added, "I've been waiting for someone to call. I have everything," and I wow. mean, she had everything. I was up in Maine um, in three days, and she not only now did I have my s articles that I had found, but she had scrapbooks um, that he had kept before he went to Antarctica. And scrapbooks that her his parents, who were furious with him, but eventually came aboard kept. And then I had other sources that I was able to tap into. I had his high school yearbook. I had newspapers from his high school. I had, I, I had his shipping records. I had, I had, I knew I was talking to his wife that, I mean, that was the craziest thing that ever happened to me, yeah. but without, um, his widow's, uh, you know, active participation in my research, I don't know if I could have told the story, um, in the way that I did. And and you went to Antarctica. Well, once I had a lot of the stories um, about him, I still didn't feel like I had the authority to tell the story. I'm living in New York City. I'm a mom hanging out in the laundry room. Who am I to tackle Antarctic yeah. <laughs> history? And I was very, very lucky to secure a, a pretty decent book deal with Simon Schuster. Um, not something that would make you envious but enough to uh, like at least get a ticket to Antarctica and I felt like that was a great use of my money because I didn't just want to write about it from clippings I wanted to have the experience of stepping foot in the same places that my nonfiction protagonist had stepped foot and remember he's going from Delancey Street in the Lower East Side to uh, Antarctica and I live on the Lower East Side and when I want where I wanted to go was not the peninsula that many Americans travel to from Argentina, but to the Ross Sea, which I left from New Zealand. It's a very hard to get on those expeditions, and it's much colder. And I started to see Antarctica the way he would have seen it on a ship, because my ship left from the bottom of New Zealand. There was a Starbucks at the bottom of New the last wow. last, the last house. One. Yeah. <laughs> the last one was like the last thing I did was had a coffee, but that was literally before that was the last place you could there's a Starbucks. It's a, the southernmost um town in um the southern hemisphere. Um and we left on a ship that took over a, a week to get to Antarctica. And then when we got there, you would start to see the things that my protagonist and his um, shipmates would have seen because not much has changed obviously in Antarctica so I saw the penguins in the order that he would have seen them the very cute little Adelie penguins and then I would see the emperor penguins which everyone mm. is 
aware of from from Disney movies and things like that. But then we would see the whales and the waves, and I started to really like have a connection to him, not just as a historical subject, but I felt like I was reliving his journey. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you don't think about by going to these places, you pick up details that you couldn't have possibly guessed. And I'll give you an example. Um, when I was near the penguin landings, because you know I was on a very high-end expedition with 60 people, so this was not a, a American mission. You know, this was a paid-for thing. I was by the engine room in a triple, but I was on the ship. Yeah, <laughs> made it. Um, but I couldn't have imagined the smell, for example, of penguin guano, penguin poop. Yeah. And how that was overwhelming and to see dead penguins while you see the live ones. I couldn't have imagined the light because even though we were there in the summer, which is American winter, it wasn't going to be 24 hours um, of light yet. There was still a sunset, a brief one. And we were there for that. And the, it was just the most gorgeous colors and things like that went into the book. And mm. I think that I didn't put my, my own journey in because I felt this was a very crazy big story to begin with, but I, help, I feel like it permeated um, the book. Hopefully it has. Hopefully yeah. I'm correct about that. <laughs> I think so. What was, uh, what was one of the hardest parts or hardest things about putting the book together, about, about making this all into a coherent story, putting the chapters together? I think I got some pretty good uh, advice from someone who had done nonfiction uh, books before. Now, remember, this is my first nonfiction book. So I wasn't going to try to reinvent the wheel. I just wanted to get through it. Right. <laughs> but I knew I had a great story. I knew I had great characters. I knew I had a great access. So I had all the ingredients for a good book. And so this very seasoned uh, writer who actually... Um, I was talking to in a coffee shop I met to try to pick his brains and say, how, how would you approach this? He said, for this book, this is such a great story. Just tell it straight. Mm. Tell it from beginning to end. And once I was able to do that, it, it was easy to sort of organize it because I just started in the beginning. Well, you, I started with the prologue, which is a very sexy way in, I think, to get the, the most exciting moment for two pages. And then you start, right. you go back a little bit. But I started um, from when his parents arrived from um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, his Polish Catholic parents, and immigrate, the immigrants, and a little bit of his experience as a young man and how he got his uh, swimming skills from being a Polish falcon, which was a group of... Um, immigrant Poles that were keeping their skills up in case Poland became a nation again, which of course it did. Um, and then I went into 1928, and the bulk of the book, although it goes further than 1930, is the expedition from 1928 to 1930. And I told it straight. I told it in the order enfolded, and I think that that is something that a lot of writers shy away from, just telling a story and not having to write the great American book and just mm-hmm. I mean readers really I believe I I mean I'm a big reader I enjoy a great whole story whether it's fiction or nonfiction. yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm what? glad I love and Billy was a reader too yeah that's something that we can talk about because yeah. um he was um a high school student he was going to textile high in Manhattan which was sort of a 
a public high school for arty kids. And he wasn't the best sitter. (laughs) He was a gestalt learner that, I mean, it reminds me of so many kids today in this uh, uh, overstimulated generation, but he just learned by seeing and doing. And um, I think that he, but what he was really loving was he had a a real affinity for polar stories, true stories. And he, he read uh, as much as he could, and the librarians knew him. And they saved anything from the North Pole, South Pole, but especially with um, Commander Richard Byrd, who was his hero. And he had quite a few books out. He was, at that time, um, the w- most famous American. Um, 1926 was his North Pole expedition. We didn't hear about Charles Lindbergh until 27. Mm. Um, there was a ticker tape parade for him uh, in 26 uh, that his father wouldn't let him go to. But in 27, um, Bird lost to Lindbergh, and they gave him another ticker per- tape parade just for losing. This was <laughs> the era of ticker tape parades. And then in 1928, he, he s- embarked on his trip to um, the South Pole to be part of the expedition that will f- be the first to fly over the South Pole. That was a big thing because the former expeditions from Europe had been men walking through the ice, and this was the age of aviation. And that is one of the reasons that Billy actually um, undertook this is because he was a reader, and he didn't want to just read adventures. He wanted to live them. And so Mm. to me, this was like a, a, like that's one of the reasons I sort of approached it like um, a Jack London novel, you know, like even though it's nonfiction. But every single sentence of this book is absolutely true. Even the dialogue that I've picked up are from his own interviews from that time or from speeches. I haven't made up one word of dialogue, and which is how do you put dialogue in a nonfiction book? Well, that's how. You, t- you find old interviews, mm-hmm. and you find anything you can that has his voice. He wrote a couple of um, speeches and gave an interview or two to um, people who were uh, extremely interested in his background. Yeah, which was, I feel like, almost everyone by the time the, the story wrapped up. What, was there anything that was uh, particularly inspiring or inspired you while you were putting the book together? I think originally I was grabbed by the fact that here was a kid whose father was in the upholstery business and he didn't want to live a life of doom yeah. in the upholstery business. And I'm from the Lower East Side. That's where my immigrant grandparents were from. I still live in that historic area. Um, but I, f- I think originally it was this story amused me and I thought, oh, I want to follow in his tracks. But I think as I went on, what really surprised me was what happens to these very, very famous men um, w- after the Great Depression hits. Um, this expedition, the first American expedition to Antarctica, was 1928 to 1930. And what happens in 1929? The Great uh, Depression that starts, the stock market crash. But they were not really that affected because they were still heroes when they came back in 1930. There was a ticker tape parade for them. But people started to care less about the hijinks of the 1920s and all the amusing anecdotes and things that people were cheering on was less important. And what really got me was what happened to these men in the 1930s, that famous men, including the captains of the ship, you know, were on the bread line and desperate for work, desperate for food. And I realized that this was 
um, truly something that I hadn't expected to, to connect to, this sort of how his social class affected his um, journey mm. and the other men on the trip, who was better off during the Depression, who wasn't, and where, where your social economic status uh, interplayed with that. All of that was new to me, and it was quite fascinating, and it was very different than going to Antarctica and, and ogling the penguins. Right. It was emotional because we're I'm many, as many, um, as I said, I'm the child of four immigrant grandparents, and I realized that my grandparents suffered through the Depression, and it really, I really connected emotionally to this uh, story because of that. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, let's get into the book, yeah, because we started talking there about everything that everything that was happening and you know kind of just from the beginning it seemed to me that that Billy was really methodical and he sort of figured out that he wanted to get on board this ship you know you so you, you kind of talk a bit of like you were saying he was at textile high he was doing all this stuff he had his, his dad was in the you know um, interior design business interior decorating but Billy was like this is what I want to do you know I've been reading these books I want to get on the ship and he kind of figured it out. He had a whole plan. He showed up and picked out a spot. He, you know, he did all the stuff. But at the same time, he didn't really plan too much outside of that. You know, like like you mentioned in the book, he had like a sandwich, but no idea what was going to happen food-wise after or anything. He, he just even, you know, the, it turns out there were other stowaways and they brought luggage with them, <laughs> you know, and, and Billy yeah, just showed up. He just showed up. And yeah. he actually is, as your readers will find out, um... What's amusing about him is that he he was a serial stowaway. Like yeah. he, it wasn't just one attempt. It wasn't just two attempts. It wasn't just three attempts. Yeah. And he still didn't bring enough food and clothes. I but he did. What he did bring was his unbelievable determination to to make this happen. He st he firmly believed in his heart that at one point, Bird, um, again, the mo one of the most famous men in America, um, would actually cave. <laughs> yeah. That was his only plan, was that if he could appeal to Bird, even though Bird rejected him oh, the time first time. time again, again. Yeah. Eventually, he, Billy was no idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that, that's actually something I wanted to ask about. He really displayed an, a remarkable amount of grit, you know, and determination and focus. And he just, like you said, he didn't take no for an answer. He kept trying. He pushed. And, you know, eventually he, he made it, you know. And, it's it's just stunning because as you describe in the book, you know, th tens of thousands of kids from all over the country tried to get on this expedition. Right there, actually. So just so you know, there were two main ships um, that were leaving from New York. There was mm -hmm. the City of New York, which right. was the flagship ship. It was a uh, very romantic. It was a, f a four masted barkentine from the late 1880s, and this was selected in part to get that spirit alive in mm -hmm. the modern world of 1920s Americans. They, I mean, and the captain selected for the flagship was Captain Melville. I mean, that was no yeah. accident. The yeah. bird knew what he was doing to get people in a frenzy. And um, Melville was actually her, uh, Mel the, the author Melville's uh, second cousin. Then there was the supply ship, which was docked um, by Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and that was n not a romantic ship. Um, and then there were two whaling ships that were going to be met um, in Los Angeles after they they were coming down from Los Angeles 
Um, they had to, back then you went, the ships went from New York down the eastern seaboard, you know, the, the flagship and the supply ship through the Panama Canal. And then there was the whaling ships that had 100 dogs mm-hmm. coming down and joining them. Those ships were not owned by Bird's Expedition. But what was amazing was just how many times uh, Billy tried to get away with this. And he, I can't even express to you that um, how amused the members of the expedition were. In thinking about all this, the grit, focus, determination, and he, you know, like like we were saying, you know, he was like, I need to get on the ship. He didn't worry about food or, you know, or clothes or anything. So, I, I mean, what made him such a special kid? How was he able to do all this when tens of thousands of other kids weren't? So you have to know, of the, fl- of the, the ships going, um, most of the people going, it was a combination of sailors and scientists. Uh, mm-hmm. This was a scientific expedition to Antarctica. It was really an expedition to, to secure Bird's legacy. But, you know, it ended up being a scientific expedition that we should be thankful for now in 2017. But 70,000, some people say 40,000, 50,000, 70,000 people applied for the 60 to 70 spots on this trip. And there was an application, and his father would not let him apply because he was under 18. Um, but it's not like he would have gotten anywhere even if he did apply, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, high school student. Um, but what was amazing, they had sacks full of mail, just people applying. And, and not just men um, and boys, but women and girls. It was the time of Amelia Earhart and liberation, and um, women now had the vote. And but they weren't going to take any women. But what made him special was that he felt in, in all his heart that if he just kept showing Bird what his determination was, that that would somehow work. None of his family believed him, except surprisingly his grandmother, yeah. um, his Polish grandmother who spoke very little uh, English. And um, hilariously, I found out through another source, uh, uh, a living source of of his, um, that his grandmother had a crystal ball. She'd come over from um, uh, the old country and she had all these amulets and she gave him the Virgin Mary to wear on his neck and, and, and that is actually what he wore around his neck when he swam into the river and all through his trip. But she told him that I could see in the crystal ball that you're going to Antarctica. And he thought that was very funny, and he was just humoring her. But I always Mm. thought that was a great little detail. And I'll tell you how I got that bit, which is the other shocking source on this story is that I had thought both of his sons from his first marriage uh, were dead. They had had a terrible... Uh, connection to drugs in the 60s and 70s and supposedly died in jail. He had a terrible first marriage. And his this n- widow was an older woman, but she was 20 years younger, which is one of the reasons she's alive. And she thought that the two sons were dead. And one day a Google alert went off with the same name, William Garonsky. And I looked to see what it was. I was terrified someone had stolen my story. And there was a picture of a man moving jails and he looked just like my William Garonsky is an older man, but it said 2015. And it turned out that this was one of his sons was still alive in jail. And that was a frantic um, 
search to how, how can I connect to him? And I finally got permission to go to a maximum security prison in Florida. And he's actually was someone who had done drugs about 20 years ago and hasn't had any drugs and they have very long sentences. And he turned out to be this amazing source. His, uh, his stepmother had no, you know, who was Billy's widow, had no idea he was alive. And everything he said checked out. He gave me very specific details that I would check with, the, with his widow. I would check with um, experts. And he was the one that told me about the crystal ball. And then his widow um, was shocked that I knew about the, how did you know about the crystal ball? So it was really neat to have not just one um, living source from a 1928 tale, but yeah. two, yeah. his son, who had a different connection to his father and could give, give more of a, a feeling of what he was like when he's not a romantic partner. Right, which is very different. So yes, <laughs> that's that's a great find, and uh, another journey that you undertook yes. to, go, to go visit <laughs> a maximum security prison and, and talk to somebody there. One thing that I wanted to pick up on, you, you mentioned kind of in, in the middle of that that you know they, they sort of weren't going to take any women on, even though that a lot of women applied, and yeah, you kind of made clear in the book there wasn't any room for them in the expedition. Uh, I guess what do you have a sense of what the environment was like for women? who wanted to be scientists or explorers at that time? And, you know, how do you think the story of the book would have changed if Billy were a girl? Well, it's really interesting. One of my prime er places for research was Ohio State University, where the Bird Archives are, which is an amazing place if anyone can ever get there. Bird was convinced he was going to be in the... Um, public's mind forever, which of course has slipped out of our mind. But there's sort of a football field size uh, archive of his four expeditions. He kept everything. And there have been people who have used the archive, of course, but nobody was looking for the stowaway file. Mm. <laughs> and so um, I was able to find not only Billy Gronsky's file, but the people um, who applied. And I sort of I was going through the files with the librarian and many of the people who had written about um, uh, birds' expeditions in the past were men and didn't actually uh, pull out a file of the women that had applied. And I went through many, many letters. And one of the letters I put into the book, a little tiny excerpt, it was a four-page letter. It was a woman, a woman, a girl, a 14-year-old girl that sounded just like Billy, what she wanted and how she wanted to get on and please take me with me and I'm I'm you know I'm a tom girl a tomboy and she just was the same spunk but there was no way that anything was going to happen to her I actually traced her down I mean a lot of these stories had to get cut mm -hmm. because it's it's not the story of the girl that wanted to stow away yeah. <laughs> she didn't go but it was fascinating to know that um even though she became a mother and she had three kids at a at an eventual point in her retirement, she just went on a barge ship around the world. She's never stopped wanting to have uh, the adventure that she wanted as a young girl, but she was blocked from those adventures. And it reminds me um, of my own mother and what issues she faced as a writer when she was younger and how many opportunities I can have in a new time. You know, and I think that that was so interesting to me. Um, I mean, actually... At the, at the same time, in the 1920s, there were surprisingly a lot of girl stowaways. There was a bit of a stowaway craze. Mm. Um, before the 1920s, people were stowing away to get to America to get citizenship for the most part, um, or 
you know, to get places. Um, after the 1920s and the 1930s, they're looking for work. They're, they're hobos and they're riding the rails. Those are the kind of stowaways. But 1920s is like really akin to flagpole sitting and buildering, which is climbing tall skyscrapers. These kids um, would use it the way that we would use Instagram to try to go viral or YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I recently wrote an article to accompany the publicity of this called The Stowaway Craze for The New Yorker. And one of the things I found was that um, half the kids that were in the news at that point were, were girls. And one of them was a girl who would use it as a passport to get a film deal. Like, I'm stowing mm. away, and she had a, you know, she was an actress. I mean, that's how people were using it. But you could see what's really neat is in the 1920s, there was a real feminist push. But in Antarctica, they weren't going to take any um, women or girls. Um, they didn't think it was safe. And then there were some really sexist journalists that would say, you know, made fun of the girls and women applying. And it was interesting to read because most of the material on this expedition was written in the early 30s. Mm -hmm. There were quite a few book deals for all the members of the expedition. They were not allowed to talk badly about Bird in order to get permission to write their books. But what's interesting is time gives you privileges as a historian. And I could see things that none of them would have seen when they were alive. And even later books that came out in the 1950s, you know, when there was a nostalgia for these Antarctic expeditions, um, they still, they were sexist, racist. There's a lot of racism at that time, too. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something that was talked about a lot in the book. Uh, I think one of the other stowaways was black and... I think there was a Jewish person yeah. on the crew. <laughs> it's like and the that start like of a, a joke. Deal. It's like the Polish yeah. Catholic and black and a Jewish yeah. kid stowaway to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. But and it was amazing how they were all covered in the press. First of all, um, without giving away the story too much, what's so interesting is this is early on in the book. They're all caught on the flagship. Mm -hmm. And each stowaway became the hero of their particular ethnic press. So there was, you know, the Polish stowaway kid, then the Jewish press in Yiddish was covering uh, the kid that came with a suitcase and extra underwear. And there was Macy's ads like, be it prepared, like the stowaway, <laughs> you know, yeah. that was Jack Solowitz, who was another uh, stowaway. Then there's Robert um, uh, Lanier, Robert White Lanier. And he was um, black and he wanted to be the first black uh, uh, person to go to Antarctica and the way he was treated was so different in the black press it was a very strong um, national black press um, as opposed to the general press and the New York Times even had on their articles that they coaxed him out with watermelon and I'm reading this you know in 2000 like in the 2016 or 15 whenever I'm reading it because now it's 2018 and I was shocked. I mean, there were just horrible things being said about him. And you, again, have the privile privilege of time to understand things that might not have been understood then. I mean, the New York Times was printing stuff like watermelon was used to draw him out. How crazy is that? Yeah. How offensive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I let's talk... Let's talk about the media for a second, because I think that's just a crucial, crucial part of of the story of the book is... Like the whole, like you said, Bird kept everything. There was a rush to document everything. I think there were the there was National Geographic people that were that were oh, on the trip. Oh, there was a, there a was team from Paramount Pictures. From the Paramount reason Pictures. he wanted to document it 
was, again, this was secretly his quest to have legacy. Mm-hmm. When he went to the North Pole, and he was not really the pilot. He was more of a navigator. People think he was the pilot. So he brings a ship with dogs and a plane, and he supposedly flies over the North Pole. He may or may not have fudged his coordinates, but right away people were doubting it because there was no proof. So even in the Explorers Club, they were wondering out loud, did he actually really fly over the, the North Pole? But he didn't document it. Then he thought, well, he's going to get glory flying over the Atlantic with his, you know, as a navigator, w- with a pilot, and win the Ortiz Prize, which, of course, his plane breaks down, and some upstart named Charles Lindbergh comes out of nowhere and wins it. And so he was very gracious to him, but it must have really stung. I mean, that, that ticker tape parade is still the biggest ticker tape parade of all time and nothing will ever top it. But Bird was someone who thought, well, what's my legacy? And he thought of the South Pole as a way to get um, some legacy, the first to fly over the South Pole. Someone had already reached the South Pole, but that was a different era. That was Amistin. Um, from Norway in 1911. He'd walked there beating out Robert Falcon Scott. But Americans were not aware of um, Antarctica. It wasn't, we just didn't bother with it. It was a European thing. And he really put um, Antarctica on the map for Americans. Like they suddenly paid attention. And what's interesting, we talked about the media. Not only did we have so many newspapers, I mean, even in New York alone, there were over. Um, two dozen newspapers coming out every day. It's crazy what what was, you know, that's where people were getting a lot of their um, information. But there was also a new technology that didn't exist in the heroic age of um, uh, the, you know, Almaston and Scott and Shackleton. There was the, the, this was the age of radio as well as the Mm -hmm. age of uh, aviation. And Americans and then part of the world as well could listen I mean, we, Bird took Americans right to Antarctica. Now, we're talking on an audio format now. It wouldn't have been so dissimilar. Um, it seemed very modern then. Um, they certainly, and, but what he also did is he said, I'm not hedging any bets. He got a film crew, a documentary crew, which was two people um, from Paramount. And there is a movie that anyone listening to this could actually just look for free on YouTube. It's called With Bird. Um, at the South Pole, and it, to this date, it came out in 1930, it is somewhat silent, but it has a lot of, um, uh, a little bit of narration, um, but it won the Oscar for cinematography, and as I was saying, to this date, it's the only documentary to have won for cinematography, um, and Billy is not listed as one of the characters, but I, as his historian, his unofic- as his biographer, mm-hmm. I recognized him right away yeah. in one of the scenes, which was amazing. Um, I mean, ag- again, he wasn't the main character on this trip. Bird was, and all the famous scientists. And I mean, he was the stowaway kid, and they he was very lucky. I mean, to be there. Uh, there was also a um, Boy Scout that was selected. And that was another crazy asterisk to the story. There were 800,000 Boy Scouts in America. They all wanted to go on this trip. And Bird was trying to mimic what had happened with Shackleton and uh, where he got a Bird Scout to go. And that was great press. And he was going to get the American Scout. 
and sort of a ringer one. His name was Paul Seipel, mm -hmm. and he had the most badges of any Boy Scout in America. He was not much of a boy. He was 19 years old, and he was six foot four, but he had 54 badges, including taxidermy, and so there was sort of this little rivalry between the Boy Scout and the stowaway, who was going to get in the movies, who was going to get to winter over, um, but that actually was a very good choice of Boy Scout because Paul Seipel, to anyone who knows about Antarctica, went on to become probably the most important person in American uh, Antarctica history besides Byrd. And he was a, a, the lead scientist um, on later expeditions. And he um, sort of, in, this is a bit of trivia, but he invented the term wind chill factor. Mm. But Bird made a good choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Antarctica seems like a place where you'd invent a uh, wind chill factor. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to second that. I, I actually went on YouTube and, and watched a chunk of that uh, movie, and it's actually really interesting and especially helps bring the book to life after you read about everything, especially the part when they're, when they're there, and you can kind of watch and be like, wow, like, okay, this is them like trying to dig up the ice and actually deal with we have to create a little... Uh, pl you know, a place for us to live over the And over it was the actually winter. the name of the place. They chose the name Little America, um, and they built a little village on ice with the American flag. How do you think that went down in America? This was huge. Yeah. A town in Antarctica, and they built tunnels for the dogs to live. Um, and the big deal was who was going to get to overwinter. It was a little bit like Survivor, like the real... Winners were going to get to overwinter there, but everybody on the the expeditions, including Billy, um, built uh, the town. There was um, luxurious furniture. There was a, li a full library. There was a gymnasium. It was kind of crazy when you think about it. It's it's since fallen. I mean, this was on the Ross Ice Barrier, where, which is now called the Ross Ice Shelf. This was not actually. This was the where they built a little America. Um, Bird was advised by Amiston, who had actually, as again, traveled there in 1911, um, who died right before this expedition, but was alive um, to advise him, that's where you should build. I don't think that that ice shelf is going to fall apart. And um, it, the pictures of it are kind of extraordinary, but it has, the ice from there has carved off into the ocean and even if you wanted to try to find it. Actually, when I was on a ship going to Antarctica, there was a GPS, and they had in the water where the site of Little America was, and we all, I took a picture of that, which mm. was kind of neat. But um, it, it doesn't exist. Uh, you know, even the site doesn't exist. But the shelf, the Ross Ice Shelf, is certainly still an amazing sight to behold, um, and it's a mile high of ice, and it's just so overwhelming. But everybody who was a Antarctica buff back then knew where the Ross um, ice shelf was. But again, they called it the Ross ice barrier. But nobody knows that now. We don't think because yeah. now we don't. That's not how we get to Antarctica. We don't. You know, the people that are going to McMurdo, the American station, or the, every country has their own station. But they go by airplane. Yeah, they take <laughs> the easy way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I want to go back a bit to, to the beginning. I mean, so interestingly, the, the beginning of the book is a lot about Billy's life. And like you said, you're sort of his you know, unofficial biographer, right? right. I think it, his book was very interesting because it didn't just jump you right into Antarctica and trying to figure out who are all these people and what's going on. You took the time to explain a bit and you talked a lot about, you know, Billy and his background and what, you know, he was doing his family and everything. So, you know, how, how did you get to that 
point, you know, where you decided, oh, you know, I, I really want to focus on on Billy and not just what happened during those few months. Well, this just isn't the all-American kid that's jumping into the river trying to get there. This is a kid who's a first-generation Polish Catholic kid. Mm -hmm. The Poles were extremely discriminated against um, Catholics as well. Um, and he was having the immigrant experience. He had grown up in tenements. His parents had high hopes for him to join the upholstery business. He was getting to go to college, to Cooper Union, which is a free college here in New York, which is very prestigious to study design. And it was expected that he would join his dad. And I thought that was amazing. I mean, my, I, my parents were both college educated, all of my aunts and uncles are, but my grandparents were straight out of the books in what they look like, you know, for the old immigrants. My grandmother was my babysitter. Mm. I have very old parents, so um, my grandmother was from the, eight, I mean, the 1880s, and she would, I mean, it was like, it was, you know, the age divide between us was extraordinary, but so that would be the same time that his grandparents were. Yeah. And I just realized that this is an immigrant tale. To me, I have to say, I also have a passion for New York history. And many people are describing this as an Antarctica tale. Uh, but I also see this as a true New York story. Um, I love the fact that this starts out in the... Lower East Side? What? Isn't that where yeah. everybody's like got like the the push carts? I mean, what? Wait, wait, what? Antarctica? Where's that coming from? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I just love the connection that I can make, even though I'm a secular Jewish person. I'm not religious at all, and I'm not Catholic. Um, I did have that emotional connection to being the grandchild of of people from the old country. And I could understand the expectations. You know, when my parents were younger, there was no messing around and, you know, doing adventures. You went, you, your parents worked hard so you could go to college and have the opportunities that they didn't have. And you paid them back in their old age. And I think that my mother had many dreams and my father had many dreams, but the main thing was to provide a steady income. And they also were ch very small children going through the depression. and. That scars a lot of the older Americans that are still alive that went through that. Now, of course, I'm, I don't think about my privilege. I think of myself as being, oh, I'm from the Lower East Side. I'm not coming from this old moneyed family. But you know what? I've, had a, I've gone to private school when I was younger. I went to a, a very prestigious specialized public high school. I went to a private college. I'm, I'm, I've had privileges just growing up in New York City that mm -hmm. I didn't even think about. Um, until I was writing this. And I thought, what amount of pressure was on him to provide for his parents? And here he is messing up Cooper Union acceptance, free college. I mean, it's so hard to get to. It's a hard, one of the hardest colleges to get into, even more so than Harvard, because it's four years paid education. And he's, he's jumping into the river. How angry must his parents have been until they started to see that there was maybe a path for him with all the publicity that suddenly emerged? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that's a that's a core conflict that you set up, you know, at the beginning of the book. Uh, you know, his parents, Francesca and and Rudy, and you know, th there's I mean, there's conflict between them that you talk about at the beginning, and then conflict between them and Billy and 
kind of the family business that Rudy was running with this interior decoration thing, and he really wanted his son to join and go to. And they were doing well in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, he I was mean, working he was for like movie stars and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he moved his family to Bayside, Queens, which a lot of Americans might not think of as the most glamorous address, but it nineteen. 20s it certainly was it was where the silent film stars were there was a started to be an exodus to hollywood but many of the most famous people that we can still you know rattle off their names today as the silent film stars including wc fields and other people like who, who obviously wasn't always silent <laughs> but um gloria swan i mean they all lived in bayside gloria swanson mm-hmm. um some of them were moving but his dream was that he was going to take his upholstery business and be the upholsterer to the stars. Now, when they started to go to Hollywood, he he told his wife they didn't make a mistake because they weren't in the film business and there were rich people in Bayside where all these mansions were and rich people still need upholstery work done. Yeah. <laughs> but Billy was just so not having it. You know, he was just, this was just like he has these, like he reads all these books about exploring and adventure he has these high-minded ideas, and he's just like there was just it, it just didn't it didn't work between them, um, and so Rudy really pushed back on that, and you know, and I he actually got him a, at one point. Bird uh, agrees to g- take him. Just then, he, Billy's arrested. His father put out a warrant right, for his arrest. Right, right. He finally got... This was, yeah, where, was it like Virginia or Virginia. somewhere? Virginia. Like, yeah, um, that's another story. But he... Not only did he go into some ships, he hitchhiked and told people he was a bottle washer on the expedition. And people bought his story. And he got himself to where the supply ship was landing again on, mm-hmm. off the coast of Virginia. I think that was one of the moments that changed his course. Because even the, the seasoned salts you know, that had been on other expeditions um, were laughing hysterically, like, how could this guy be here? And even Bird, when told that Billy had arrived again, just burst out laughing. I mean, I yeah. think they liked him. And one thing about Richard Bird that's very important to understand is that he, he's not, he's, I mean, the Shackleton expeditions and the Scott, they're all very, very exciting. Bird was, like, very protective of his men. No one ever got hurt. No one ever got lost on his expeditions. And he did have a very big narcissistic streak, but he was also very smart. And um, he basically wanted everyone that was joining the expedition to get along with each other. He wasn't going to pick somebody that was a troublemaker. And when he could see that everyone on the cruise were cheering on the stowaway themselves, that was a real turning point for him. And he happened to be in Virginia, sitting in a chair next to his brother, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but his brother is the governor of Virginia. This is the birds of Virginia. And his brother, from an old newspaper account that I found, um, in front it w- was talking in front of a reporter and said, you know, there's great value in that stowaway. And this whole expedition was not paid by the American government. It was all promotion and publicity. Um, and that's the moment that that uh, Billy's fate changed when they realized, hey, not only do the Americans like him, but the people on this trip love him. And that was, I, th- I believe, the reason why he was asked, because he made everybody you know, feel good. He was a real fast-talking New York kid, yeah. funny. But he was not a mean child, and... He wasn't. He wasn't 
he was a truant, but not really a truant. He was a reader. How many readers are real truants? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gets on the, he finally gets on and he finally goes and he just starts to have these incredible adventures, you know, and it's just amazing how we shift in the book from hearing about his life growing up in New York and dealing with just typical big city high school kid. And now he's, you know, going to the Panama Canal, going to the Panama Canal, going to Tahiti. Tahiti. (laughs) And this was an arty kid. I mean, so he went to a very progressive high school. I mean, they read the um, Tender uh, Tender is the Night and the reading of Scott Fitzgerald. They had art classes with nudes. And his teachers, I actually got the, this is one of the advantages of finding the widow, is I got curriculums for the school. I could see what classes he was taking. Hmm. And one of the things that they were doing was studying Gauguin. And, you know, he, so he's loving the fact that he's not just, is he living the life of uh, one of um, his books, but he's in a painting as well. And he was not an innocent guy, you know, like he loved girls. He was a, they, one of the sailors wrote a description of him as like, you know, flapper chasing, loud mouth, funny. And you kind of get a picture of him and his, some of his letters that I have uh, read, I copied them from his widow were hilarious because they were letters to his dad not to let his mom know about what a great time he was having <laughs> in Tahiti. Yeah. And yes. I got the sense also when he was in Panama where all the sailors went off with prostitutes. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if he saw a prostitute, but I have a feeling that, you know, he's with sailors and they're at sea and he's 17. Now he's 18. I think he had a great time. Yeah, yeah. That might not be in the YA version. Fair <laughs> enough. If there's one. Yeah. <laughs> so it, he eventually, you know, they eventually, they go to New Zealand and they have a whole bunch of stuff happens there. I mean, but... Eventually, they make it to Antarctica, and he is just blown away. And yeah, he's seen, like you said, he's seen the penguins and seals. And he was a great penguin chaser because he yeah, had a real... Yeah, this is one of his key jobs, right? Yeah, well, he was... When he was... At, in 1925, so three years before the expedition, he was actually in the papers for um, training his dog, Tootsie, to ride a milkman's horse. I mean, he was had a real gift with animals. He had pet rats. He kept bees and bird could see this because there were 100 dogs on this trip and there was a cat named eleanor Mm -hmm. that stowed away at the last minute from brooklyn and he was very close to the cat too he missed his tootsie back in new york but bird saw his energy and one of the things that's really funny is that they were trying to bring penguins back for the bronx zoo and the london zoo that was one of the missions as well and um that happens on a later expedition because all these peng- poor penguins kept dying. But Billy was charged with rounding up the penguins because he's like, let's get the team to get the penguins. And some of the descriptions that I found from the old uh, other members were so hilarious about that. So it's not like I'm making this up. Every, again, every detail that might seem like an embellishment is actually coming from a historical source. But I do know that he was the penguin tenderer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and also, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned that Bird never let anyone die on his expeditions. And there were a couple points where it seems like Billy actually saved people's lives because he was such a great swimmer. Oh, that was that was so fascinating to me. There was another person on this trip um, who was uh, the only Jewish person. Uh, his name was Benjamin Roth. He was an engineer on one of the on the airplanes. He was from the Lower East Side and did not know how to swim. He fell into the ice. Another man named uh, Harrison f- uh, fell into the ice. And 
one of the ways that um, I think he really impressed Bird, Billy impressed Bird, was that he didn't even think twice about it. He dove into the waters off the coast of Antarctica when there was ice cracking, a, a, um, a, you know, an iceberg broke in half. And he got, he helped. I mean, there were other people there. He wasn't the only person, but he was, like, there weren't very many. And he was shivering, and um, it was just amazing. And a bird actually really, really liked him for that. And one of the letters that was probably his most um, valued possession is a thank you note from Bird saying that he'll never forget that moment. And I thought that was amazing. And none of this I knew, by the way, when I started the book. These were all little joyful discoveries as I was going along with my research. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it is interesting because, you know, Bird really did like Billy, it seemed. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned this whole who gets picked to winner in Antarctica. It's kind of like Survivor. You know, Billy didn't get picked and ended up going back to New York. And, you know, he was kind of crushed. But at the same time, he went back to New York. He was given a hero's welcome. And he was used. He actually yeah. went, would go back to Antarctica to pick up the overwintering crew, which not yeah. everybody was invited back. Right. But Bird saw a different value for him, mm. um, which was that he was the stowaway. And... I was so lucky to obtain his speeches. He was um, put on WOR Talk Radio in New York, which reached over. There weren't very many radio stations, and they had very wide reaches. So his speech as the sto was advertised. I found the advertisements, and he reached over a million people. And he was the first person back from Antarctica that was actually talking about what it was like for the people over at Little America. You could have reporters talking, but here was a member. And he was very wisely used. There were many articles about him in 1929. And then he got to go back and pick them up. But he was giving speeches. And he was sort of the crowd favorite. You know, there were people that were much more famous than him. You know, Bird to begin with. And, you know, of course, they had to put the chief uh, mates in the, and the captains and, you know, the scientists in the news. But um, especially the New York press, um, lo the tabloids loved Billy. Um, and also, he started to get picked up in international press. They loved him in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, in London, they carried him. But one of the things that was amazing was that they were sort of um, using his story to, to create excitement in New Zealand, where, where they had seen a lot of ex explorers, and they didn't care, but they wanted to have sort of photo ops the way that mm. maybe Trump would want a photo op, yeah, right? Yeah. And so they talked about the stowaway before he arrived. And when Billy got off the sh ship, the supply ship in Dunedin, New Zealand, where I actually went as well for research myself, um, he was a household name. People were saying, oh my God! And he had no idea how famous he was in the nation of New Zealand. And everywhere he went, people were, you know, and I, from what my account of this, from what I can make out, he also had quite a great deal of fun with the ladies of New Zealand because this was also the last stop before they were going to Antarctica. Yeah. And he was dying. He didn't have any money because, you know, they were all volunteering. His dad was trying to send them some money, but um, you didn't really need any money if you were the famous stowaway kid. You could kind of get invited for dinner yeah. <laughs> with the sexy flapper girls of yeah. New Zealand. <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of want to uh, uh, fast forward a bit now. And um, we talked a bit at the beginning about what happened after. So, you know, that Billy went back after, after all this to pick up the people that had been overwintering. They all came back. 
And then, like you said, you know, they were, they were treated like heroes, but then the depression hit and they all kind of had to deal with that. And you know, even the captains, like you said, were, were stuck in bread lines looking for work. I mean, w- what sort of happened to everybody that was on this expedition during that time? I and mean, what, what, what was it like for them? What, what was their next chapter? I think it was humiliating because they had literally, I mean, you can't imagine how famous these people were. It's kind of hard to believe now but they're f- lost to history. But they're f- they're the New York Times was the official sponsor. They were it was sort of paid news coverage, but which Americans didn't know it was paid for. But every single day they were in the news. There was a, a New York Times reporter on the journey named Russell Owens who won the Pulitzer Prize for his paid coverage. Um, so people knew every character. And but who cares when your family can't? you know, afford a meal, you're going to care about the, the guys from Antarctica. Mm. Um, one thing that Billy was able to do was um, ask Bird for help. And those m- letters I found in Ohio State, which his, his um, wife had never seen, were really moving and brutal. And his parents started writing letters as well. But he was able to get, Bird uh, got him into Columbia University. Can you imagine that that uh, application in my summer my summer experience was going to Antarctica yeah. with Admiral Byrd, yeah. <laughs> and he wrote his letter of recommendation. He got into Columbia, an immigrant kid from the poultry business got into Columbia. But even then, the Depression worsened. We think of it as starting in 1929, but a, a lot of people who know American history know it didn't really, really start to feel like unthinkable until the early 30s with the Dust Bowls hitting. And by then, his his family was trying to keep the business, but they had they lost their business. And even though their son was at Columbia University, he had to leave. Um, he w- had a little bit of work talking about whales. I mean, some crazy stories that are in the book. But at the end, it was like, where am I going to get some work? And the, it, the only way out for him was to go back to sea because the menial jobs that he had done as a stowaway included being a mess boy, and but even worse was being in the coal room, which is really hot, and nobody wants those jobs even in a depression. <laughs> and so he found work in the coal rooms and he got on ships and then he started to work his way up um, in commercial ships. Um, and what was amazing was his very quick rise because of his extraordinary experience at a young age. And one of the things that I'm so amazed about is how quickly he rose from the stowaway to the captain of his own ship. And I think that's really amazing that he was leading he was a commander and I think that's the part that I didn't really know when I was starting the story that it had this real poetic balance um he didn't become an explorer which was his real passion but he became a commander how Mm. amazing is that that this immigrant who would read books about commanders you know he wasn't an immigrant he was first generation but you know, his destiny was the upholstery business. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You, you talk a lot about that right at the end of the book, this whole merchant mariner, uh, which I didn't even really know much about. But yeah, it's it's they're very important. And, and he became well, a captain on the ship. In the World War II, the merchant marines were actually commandeered by the American government and led, they would bring supplies to mm-hmm. the soldiers, but they had some of the most dangerous missions. Many people were torpedoed. They were going from Greenland over to Russia, and Billy was leading some of those ships um, to Murmansk. I mean, you say the word Murmansk to people who are over 90, they just shudder because there were many, many merchant marines that just died. And he 
had learned his safety techniques from Bird, and nobody ever died on his ships. And in talking to his son and his widow, they both said that wa while the Antarctic experience was a really interesting thing to him and amusing to him, what really defined his life was being um, in service to the American government during World War II and really seeing people blown up around him. So, you know, being at war defines him more. And his stowaway, I think that his stowaway background was less important to him. And I think that's one of the reasons it also disappeared as a story because he wasn't promoting himself. Hmm. He didn't think it was that important. But I think it's important yeah. that here is a 17-year-old, the youngest member of the first American expedition to Antarctica, and his story was lost to history. I don't know that he would have ever written an autobiography. It wouldn't even occur to him. He wasn't that type of guy. He was very, very modest. From I, I interviewed some of his um, first mates from later on when he was a captain that are still alive, and they said he, they didn't even know he was a stowaway. They started laughing. They're like, what, the, what are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, that's how modest he was. Mm. Well, then, lucky for us that you told this story, this incredible story. Um, so just to kind of wrap it up a bit, I mean, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that you wanted people to know about the book or any lessons you hope people would, would get from the book? Well, I was so delighted that Simon & Schuster included um, a very large photo spread, which I think actually helps this story as mm -hmm. well. It's not, I mean, I hope my writing is nice, but yeah. it's lovely to be able to look at some pictures. It, re it reminds you that it is a true story. I think the other thing that I want people to think about is that this was a time of American exceptionalism, and we have forgotten how much we achieved as a nation that we were let we were leading expeditions to antarctica this was the most exciting thing going it was the great unknown we were flying over the continent for the first time people thought there were um might be lost people or animals i mean the komodo dragon had just been recently discovered by the west and there were science magazines saying there might be dinosaurs you know that it was crazy and it was like going to the moon and we have forgotten about the passion that all Americans had for this expedition. He was, Bird, not Billy, was the m pretty much other than Lindbergh. You know, by 1928, I would say Lindbergh was the most famous man in America. But he was his number two on fighting for his turf again. And we have lost that passion. And it, was, it didn't matter what your politics were, whether you were Democrat or Republican, Everybody was cheering on American exceptionalism, hmm. and we've lost that. There's such a bitter divide in this country, um, and if only we could have things like, you know, we did have the space race. That's probably the closest that, 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 that came to this feeling about making it to the moon, and whether you were, whatever your background, everybody was cheering on the astronauts. And I don't know what's going to be next. Maybe Mars yeah. will be the next thing like that. Huh further frontiers yes and i and i'm actually in the middle of writing uh an article about the the future of stowaways and maybe i'm going to tackle what it would be Ooh. like to stowaway to mars <laughs> yeah i was about to ask you i mean what's next what, what else are you working on so you're working on this article well what i have discovered is that my hunch that this was the kind of book i wanted to write after taking a hiatus from wacky fiction and documentaries was right. This is where I found myself. I'm 
I took a couple of uh, deep dives into the wrong direction <laughs> and I have just loved every minute of writing this. And so I've been talking to my um, editor about what's next and I want to stick with narrative nonfiction and I've discovered another crazy true story that I hope will readers will hear about in a, maybe a two years, a year Ooh, or two years. Okay. Exciting. I no, I think this is it. I think I've really found my... Uh, milieu. Yeah. I really am very happy. And, you know, I'm also a little bit more seasoned than I was as a younger writer. I, I'm not uh, uh, thinking that everything's going to change overnight. We're pretty much going to be the same place when, you know, and I think it's so this whole ride myself has been really just fun because I'm very realistic that at the end of the day, I'm just a writer and I'm telling a story and I'm lucky to get the readers that I have. And no matter how many articles there are, I mean, that's probably how Billy felt. Like, oh, look, I'm in the paper. I'm fa you're not famous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a time, for a moment, until the next thing comes along. And in the publishing world, it's next month. Right. It's right away. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to ask a couple. I have a thunder round I like to do. It's a couple sure. quick questions to get to know you. Then we'll, then we'll call it a day. So to start off with, what's your favorite food and or drink? I have a very specific favorite food, which makes me sound like a 96-year-old woman. No, let's, let's hear it. I love herring. Oh. <laughs> I, love, I love all herring, and, and, and I just crave it. Mm. And I, uh, my daughter makes fun of me. She's like, what kind of, what, how old are you? Yeah. <laughs> but it's also not just the, the Jewish-style schmaltz herring, but I love the herring that comes from the Netherlands. They call it the new herring, and mm. there's a week in New York where you can get it, and it's amazing. Just one week? Oh, yeah, it's a very specific, N-I-E-W, wow. new herring. It's a very unique herring. It's sort of like getting the wine that comes out for oh, like okay. a, a month. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of herring. You got you to gotta snag it. Okay. Uh, where is your favorite place you've ever been? Could be Antarctica, but... I have to say it? that I w as a documentary maker, I've had the real treat to travel. Mm -hmm. I've been to the Amazon. I've been to the jungles in New Guinea. But the moment that I actually cried, besides Antarctica's like surreal, but was seeing the Taj Mahal working on a documentary. You know, this was a paid mm -hmm. trip. I was, <laughs> I just want to let you know, that's one, documentaries don't pay, but at least you get travel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was um, in front of the Taj Mahal and I actually started crying. And that was the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. And also mm. the story. I'm a real sucker for stories, you could tell. And the great romantic story that this was built for his lover that was never going to see it just yeah. got me as well. Yeah. So if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? I think that I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, it's funny when we look at our social media posts, like, you know, Facebook prompts you with what happened eight years ago or nine years ago. I remember how happy we were as Americans. Like, you know, not happy, but like that we were more innocent. There's so much like, um, international turmoil right now and I think that might be the way that people felt in the 30s looking back on the 20s hmm. um, things that bothered me I'm just like look I just want to have a safe country for my daughter to grow up in I don't want nuclear war yeah and I think if I could wave a magic wand it would be to take away the political strife that we have in the United States right now great I, I think many many people would agree with you so Hopefully, hopefully we'll get there and return back. To a set, just a feeling of, of, 
you know, what would be amazing to me is if um, Americans were again reaching for these great goals of joint exceptionalism, like going to the unknown continent of Antarctica, like reaching the moon, because imagine if we could put our passions to science and experience instead of um, hating each other. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Lori, it has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, John. Uh, this is Lori Gwen Shapiro, her book, The Stowaway. It is, as you've heard, an amazing book with a gripping story. I heartily recommend it. And um, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. Thank you.